Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code LINZY, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Laura Gainch, PhD. Laura is a neuroscientist and a sleep scientist with a background in holistic family sleep. On her Science for All Women platform, she helps mothers turn sleepless into blissful nights with the power of science and connection. She wants families to find their unique way to parent at night. On Your Science Team with another scientist, she also provides holistic sleep and parenting professionals with truly evidence-based, up-to-date sleep data to make holistic child sleep mainstream. Laura is currently working with another sleep scientist on a free sleep masterclass for professionals and subsequently a subscription for professionals, as well as working with a French best-selling author and illustrator to create a fully illustrated sleep resource for parents. In today's episode, we will discuss the importance of sleep for adults and children, the key differences between the sleep needs of adults and children, how much sleep we really need, and so much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everybody. Today, we have Dr. Laura Gainch. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lindsay. I'm so excited. I hope I don't talk too much over whatever you ask me, but talking about sleep is my passion. So yeah, let's do this. (laughs) And I'm sure some people listening right now are pretty sleep deprived, whether or not it's from with their kids overnight or just doing the mom stuff we have to do where we just don't get sleep and we're up churning the butter until midnight and getting up at five. (laughs) I'm excited to hear what you have for us today because we know sleep is incredibly important, but we don't always you know, have the option of getting the exact amount of hours we need per night. And I can't wait for your insight on, I mean, not only children's sleep, but our sleep too. You know, it can be hard. It can be hard. Some people suffer from insomnia. Some people suffer from their kids waking them up all night or their pets. Actually, you know what I heard? Where did I, I either read this somewhere or was listening to something. And they had said, you know, the most common reasons for you to get woken up at night, the three most common reasons were children, obviously, we know that one, to pee, which Okay. And pets. And I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh. I mean, you know it, but when you really hear it out loud, I'm like, I have gotten up so many times because the dog needs to go out. 
<laughs> or he's like itching himself in the corner and he weighs a million pounds. So he's like knocking stuff over while he's doing it in the middle of the night. And I think this is already a great point because in the kind of big social media machine, you will not have a big movement of people saying, oh, your dog's sleep is a problem. Let's fix it. But you will hear, you know, your baby's sleep is a problem. Let's fix it. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Why are we accepting some things? And other things are tagged problematic immediately. So thanks for bringing that up because I, I find it weird. I'm like, no one talks about the gazillion times my cats wake me up as well. And I'm like, yeah, well, they are crep cre crepuscular. You say crepuscular? Yeah. Yep. So what do you want to do? They're, that's their biology. <laughs> yeah. We have, <laughs> we have two cats. They're, they're rescues. And we've had them now. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the oldest one's almost 15. And actually, Dante is on my lap right now. He's 13. But he's like a dog. He like literally follows me everywhere. He's on my lap anywhere. It's hysterical. But the older cat we have, he basically lives in our basement because he is a talker. And I don't know if you've ever met a talking cat. Mm -hmm. He does not stop from like 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. He's just meowing. And this is how he was since he was little. Like this is, and we've brought him in. We're like, does he have something wrong? Does he? And they're like, no, no, he's just a talker. And I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't do the talking cat. But he actually likes it down there because he loves catching all the mice. And he like at 7 p.m. It's so funny. He like just voluntarily goes down there. He like meow at the door and be like, it's time for me to go down there. Take my little nap. <laughs> So I have a talker too, and you would be hearing him because every time I'm on a Zoom call or any kind of kind of phone call, he's like, wait, it's my turn. Me too. I want to talk. And so my mom is actually visiting Japan right now, and she's literally on the couch right now trying to keep him focused so that he doesn't disturb the recording. So I, I know the, the cat talkers very well, and you would be hearing him if I was alone and I didn't have the support of my mom tonight. <laughs> <laughs> She's like the cat sitter over there making sure there's no <laughs> disturbance. Oh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. All right, Laura, why don't you start by telling us like, why did you become a sleep scientist? Like, how'd you get started? My sleep obsession started when I was a teenager because I was a long-term uh, sleepwalker. And that was kind of part of my normal but one time I had an accident and I, I jumped from, you know, one of those kind of really high bunk beds mm -hmm. and I woke up and I fell. And this was really weird to me. And I think I'm a researcher probably from birth because you will have something and I have to find out why or, or how it happened. So my curiosity was really started there. I even created a choreography for the end of my, like the end of year diploma and everything. And I was always like, it was always at the back of my mind, like what was different about this? Why, you know, I always sleepwalk. Why? And so later when I started a, a biology, and became a researcher. I always studied the brain and the neuroscience, which was like my baby. Like I love it. Mm -hmm. And when I ended up being like, okay, should I do a PhD? Everyone encouraged me because contrary to a lot of people who kind of end up doing a PhD because they don't know what to do. I loved research. Like it was always something that worked for me. I was like, well, maybe it's time that I just go into sleep. So after doing more like neurogenetics, I was like, let's just jump into human sleep. So I moved across the, the world another time to Australia and I did a human sleep PhD. 
And uh, after that, it just kind of, everything kind of happened. And I, I want to thank motherhood for teaching me how to kind of live with chaos and just, you know, kind of go with the flow because at some point, you know, meeting moms and they were like, sleep, you're a sleep scientist, tell me more. And then somehow supporting moms with like, you know, little information and that they would be like, wow, I didn't know that. And then I remember my neighbor in Switzerland, my daughter was really young and she had a, a six month old and she struggled with the naps. And I was like, well, you know, it takes time, but you know, you could try this, this, this. And two weeks later, she's like, oh yeah, the naps are great. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, <laughs> and so that's why I was like, Maybe this is something that is needed. And it's true that in my community now, there's a few scientists where, you know, I could probably count our, us in two hands in the sleep community, let's say the holistic sleep community. And we want to really add more weight to that part of the sleep community and provide people with a different perspective and, you know, just let people know. And I never want to make a decision for someone else. I completely understand the pressure that parents are on, but I want people to know there are other options. There are lots of options and it's not just one way it works for everyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have lived everywhere as a side note. <laughs> I'm like, she's just so nonchalantly like, oh, you know, studied in Australia, lived in Switzerland. I mean, that's just so what made you want to study in uh, Australia? Was there like a specific program there that you were interested in? It's even more convoluted, but I did my master's internship in Boston at Harvard and I worked on brain tumor there with one of the one of the most inspiring scientists and I remember telling him that I was really interested in sleep and <laughs> he was really like kind of direct and he was like Laura this is really useless like no one's interested in that and then he, he he came back another day and he's like oh by the way actually I take back what I said my housemate is working in one of the best lab, like the, the lab in Boston that works on, on sleep disorders is one of the most famous in the world. And she's like, my housemate works there and she works on sleep apnea. And that's really good. You know, in terms of research, you always have to think about where the fundings are going to be as much as your passion, right? Because it's, it's not easy. And so he, he told me about her and then Years later, I was like, wait, I heard about this, this woman. And it's funny because I, when I contacted her, she moved back to Melbourne because she was Australian. And she immediately thought that I contacted her because I wanted to work in Boston. And I was like, no, I heard about you. I want to work with you. <laughs> and also a woman, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. So yeah, I had chosen her basically. <laughs> that's oh, that's so cool. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, so let's talk about, can you explain why it's important for us to sleep, both adults and children? And then can you just tell us what is our recommended, you know, you'll hear people say like, it's good to get seven or eight hours of sleep a night. Or for children, you know, there's all these charts that you can find, you know, like if you were to go on Pinterest, it'll say, you know, if your child is 12 to 24 months, they need X amount of hours of sleep and humans differ. So it's, it's can be hard if you're not, if you're a mother and you're looking at that chart and you're like, oh boy, I don't think my, my child sleeps more than that. Or my child doesn't sleep as much. You know, how important is that? Why is sleep important? The first thing is to observe and know that 
we sleep about a third of our lives. So a lot of people who say, you know, you'll sleep when you're dead. Yeah, but in order to live well, you need to sleep well. It's necessary for all living beings and arguably even trees have some state of dormancy during certain months, which I personally find really fascinating. And we have to remember that sleep is really vulnerable. Like if we were still living in caves, it's not a good idea. So if it weren't absolutely essential, it would have likely been removed by natural selection and evolution. Mm. That said, in the research, it's really interesting because the function of sleep is still quite elusive. So let's kind of break it down briefly. So it is multifunctional. We have noticed that there's lots of things happening, including repair, learning consolidation, immune system regulation, hormone regulation, metabolism. But what we we notice more and more now is, is that these functions happen equally during sleep and wakefulness. So it's more like they take the advantage of sleep to also happen then. And what is one function that seems to be really uniquely related to sleep is the brain function. And the brain needs to actually recover. It's really the only moment where it can recover and function properly. And when we don't sleep, the brain function is what suffers the most over anything else in terms of like sleep deprivation studies and stuff. This is what we see. We're like, yeah, you know, the body function is not great, but it still works. Whereas the brain is like messed up. It's also the reason why we actually have an off switch of the brain. So imagine like an hourglass and it's like when it gets full of this specific substance that accumulates the longer we are awake. And once it reached this kind of threshold, you'll fall asleep. You know, even if you're watching your favorite Netflix show and, you know, you're like, oh, I want to binge watch all the episodes. It's not going to happen if you, <laughs> you reach your limit. <laughs> so that's what's really important for sleep. And I'd, I'd also add that it's interesting that you can notice that poor sleep looks really different in adults and in children. So for example, the signs of sleep apnea in adults and the signs of sleep apnea in children are kind of almost opposite. Like in adults, you will notice more like sleepiness, lack of focus, whereas in children, you can see more like attention deficit, tantrum, sometimes even hyperactivity. So that's also really interesting and shows, you know, kind of how much our, our brains just needs to kind of rest. That's the first part of your question. Shall I move to the next one or did you want to comment on, on that already? Are there any, yes, one, one thing about that. Are there like any key differences between the sleep needs? Like, is there anything that makes adults kind of stand apart from children when it comes to the needs for sleep? Absolutely. Several things. One of the most obvious is that in young children, sleep is what we call polyphasic, which is that during the 24 hours, kids split their sleep into several periods, whereas adults tend to have monophasic, which is just one period of sleep. I would argue that it's still debated whether adults should have more kind of split period. I personally really like my naps, but you know, <laughs> I'm really into this idea of like it's individual and I'm pretty sure some people would feel really bad if they nap, whereas some people can benefit from it, but not enough data on naps. Naps is really lacking <laughs> in terms of research. 
Another thing is that you have broadly two types of sleep, mm-hmm. but in adults, they're, they're cut into even more. So you have non-REM sleep and REM sleep. Non-REM is more or less deep, quiet sleep, and REM is more active sleep. And in adults, you will separate the non-REM into an additional three kind of types of non-REM. Whereas in babies, until depending on the baby, three to six months, they have only two types of sleep. So quiet and active, which we can respectively also call non-REM and REM. And when they're really young, the babies will enter in, in active sleep, whereas adults will enter in quiet sleep. And so uh, this oftentimes parents will notice when it, it finally changes, when babies kind of start to have more adult-like sleep. Because at the beginning, you have your baby, they fall asleep and you're like, oh, I can leave. I can leave you for a little, you know, or just at least separate them from you for a little bit. And they're fine. They're stable. But later on, you might struggle because you're like, oh, I can leave. And baby's like, wait, where are you going? Come back. Yeah. Uh, And that's where you have to wait like 15 to 20 minutes because when you enter in this quiet sleep, you're not stable immediately. So that's one of the huge difference. And we often see that when we, we hear a lot about those sleep progressions or sometimes around four months, sometimes around six months. It really depends on the baby. And another thing is that newborn can spend up to 90% of their total sleep in the active sleep, <laughs> whereas adults is about 20 to 25%. So that's where you're like, okay, uh-huh. the amount is really different. The function and what the babies need is really different from what, what adults need. So it makes sense that they need more, more sleep. A lot of the time we simplify and we're like, oh, well, kids are growing. So that's why they need more sleep, which is probably true. But I think that it's way more about what's going on in the brain again, because as we said just before, it seems like the brain is the one that needs to sleep the most. And when we look at the brain activity in the first few years, between birth and six years old, the number of neurons double. And when we think about the reorganization During infancy, there are 60 connections per second that are eliminated. Like there's so much going on in there that, of course, then the the brain needs to recover and needs more sleep, in in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I have so many questions (laughs) off of that. And we'll come back to the original like two, three-part question I had for you. But So you mentioned adults will spend approximately 20 to 25% of their sleep in REM. Are there certain things that can affect that? Like, for example, poor dietary choices or alcohol use or stress? Absolutely. So uh, alcohol is a good example because, uh, and a colleague of mine in Australia was working on alcohol in sleep. So I have a little bit of knowledge in that, even if it's not my, my kind of topic. It's really interesting because a lot of people will be like, Ooh, I'm going to get a little kick and then sleep so well. So alcohol is great. And I'm, I'm, I'm using my fingers here <laughs> because it's, makes you fall asleep really fast. So what we call the sleep onset latency, the time that it takes to fall asleep, is decreased. But then your sleep becomes really poor in terms of quality. So like way more fragmentation, way less of the sleep that you need to really feel restored and refreshed in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. So definitely. Another thing 
in general is going to be sleep sleep apnea because actually a lot of sleep apnea severe patients have very little REM, very, very little REM to the point that, and that's really uncommon, and I have seen that in my in my work, they fall asleep in REM, which is what I was saying the adults don't do, which is, I find that amazing because... And I actually talk about that because a lot of people are like, if your child doesn't nap long enough, they don't have enough of every type of sleep. Right. But adults adjust, the brain adjusts what it's missing. And so I totally believe, and we don't have data on that, but, but I think it's a good example and an illustration that if adults brain adjust, I'm pretty sure babies brain adjust as well. If they're missing REM sleep, they will try to get it as soon as possible. So for me, in babies, I also believe that if for any reason they didn't have enough sleep, maybe their next bout of sleep will be more. Is REM. Yeah. Interesting. Really cool. So let's talk about, we'll talk about adults first and then maybe kids. Talking about average, what should we be getting for sleep and how that kind of changes as we age as well in both children and adults? So for adults, I'm going to say my honest answer is that I don't know. And I wish more people would say, I don't know. There are some data that suggest that most adults need between seven to nine hours of sleep, and that's how they feel optimal. But we really lack information to, to show that less sleep or more sleep is harmful. And The other thing is that sleep deprivation used to be something that was done commonly (laughs) in the laboratory. Now we know that it's harmful, so it's not something that we can do. So it's really important to know that in terms of research, what we know now is what we observe. And so it's hard to say, we we can see the variation and be like, okay, I see that some people sleep five hours, some people sleep 11 hours. But then it's hard to say, is that bad or is that good? Like, how can we really assess all that and then be like, "Mm." to me, sleep is super highly individual. And we really have to get away from trying to find the one magic number. Again, you can use it as guidance and be like, okay, if most people need between seven and nine hours, I'll try to play around those numbers and see what works for me. Another thing about what you said, how it changes with age, I was doing some research a while back to show that the needs are so different because I do believe that fragmented sleep doesn't affect young children, but fragmented sleep definitely affects young adults, right? So it's like, how can you parent when your sleep is disrupted, you don't feel good about it, while your baby's like, I had a shitty night, but I'm dancing in the morning, I feel great, you know? It's tricky. It's really tricky because indeed, it seems like for babies, waking up every hour as long as they go back to sleep, it's like, whew, no problem, no problem at all, but in adults. And so I was looking at data on older adults, and it seems like older adults feel better with less sleep and more fragmented sleep. Oh, interesting. In terms of really kind of health measurements and stuff like that. And I was like, ooh, this is great to kind of show again that it's not because it's different that it's bad. because. Uh, A lot of sleep coaches on social media will be like, your child needs to link sleep cycles, otherwise, blah, blah, blah. But we are really putting a young adult perspective on a baby. 
And we really have to consider, is that, is that our normal? Is it also their normal? Which one is, you know, and kind of readjust what we see. So that was really interesting to me when I was like, and it's true, you will notice that a lot of, a lot of older adults will be like, oh yeah, I just woke up and I don't know, I went to have a little tea and then I went back to sleep and they still feel good about it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Okay. A few things. Um, I wanted to ask you about REM specifically. Is there any data that talks about or that has looked at are people, do they have different abilities to get into REM quicker and stay there longer than other people? People like if you were, if you and I were to study each other's sleep habits, is it possible that I'm able to spend more time in REM and get there quicker than you, for example? And so then I'm able to feel better on, you know, six hours of sleep, um, whereas the person next to me might only feel better on, say, eight hours of sleep because it may take them longer to achieve that. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's really interesting. So the first thing is that in terms of feeling refreshed, so like feeling restored in the morning, you will need more of the deep sleep of non-REM. So that would be the first thing. In terms of, for example, uh, how you measure sleep quality in a sleep lab, you you will measure what we call slow wave sleep which is the kind of stage three of the non-REM. So you enter in non-REM, that's the sleep where you think that you're not asleep if you get woken up, you know? For example, I don't know if with your partner, you're like, hey, you're snoring. And they're like, no, I wasn't sleeping. And it's like, yes, you were. Uh, All the time. (laughs) This is the first stage of sleep because it's really close. And actually, when you look at the brainwaves, it's actually really hard to distinguish Uh, wakefulness from the first stage of sleep. And then you go deeper and deeper. And in stage three, which used to be stage three and four, now it's just stage three, you will have those massive brain waves, which we call slow wave sleep. And we have noticed that there is this correlation between quality and how you feel with the amount of slow wave sleep that you get. Okay. Um, In terms of the amount of REM, it's really interesting the other thing that I can say, like, I wouldn't be able to tell you how you have a certain amount of REM besides the fact that, for example, if you have big learning moments, you get more REM at, at night. Mm-hmm. That's something that has been observed both in, in children and in adults. So like if you have big, I don't know, I guess exams or something, you will have more REM probably for memory consolidation and learning, et cetera, et cetera, which is also really interesting. So it depends on the phase of what you're doing during your day, basically, and then your brain readjusts. I did want to ask you if, you know, as you were talking about as we get older and kind of what changes and sometimes, you know, they feel better with fragmented sleep and less sleep, does melatonin play a role in sleep at all, you know, when you compare children to adults, because, you know, children, they sleep longer, typically, they, they spend more time sleeping than say, if we're comparing to, you know, an 80 an year old person, and an 80 year old person, like you said, can sometimes feel good on less sleep and, and fragmented sleep and, and such. Does melatonin play a big role in any of that? In terms of the differences between the two, young babies do not produce melatonin on their own, until depending, so the kind of the process to start uh, producing their own melatonin uh, depends on their environment as well. So it can be three months, it can be a bit longer depending on the baby and, and, and their environment. 
which is why they rely on, for example, breast milk and things like that. I would have to get back to you on that one. I actually don't know, but I'm sure you and I will be in touch for yeah, I was just curious. I just questions. kind of popped up. No, head. that's really yeah. interesting. I do not know the development of melatonin during age, personally, but I, I can definitely check it out. Yeah, I was I was just thinking about it in my head because I was thinking, you know, as if as we age, our melatonin is decreasing very naturally. You know, does that affect our ability to fall asleep, stay asleep? all of those things. But I do think it's interesting that you said, you know, as we do get older that, you know, we can feel rested and feel better even though we're having fragmented sleep or less sleep. I I was really interested when I when I read about that. I was like, "Ooh." Uh but sometimes I can't, you know, it's really hard. Like I love I love creating content. I really it's it's and I I hope that people who see my social media understand this kind of scientist side of me that is really Originally, I, I have to say, when I started this business, it was hard for me because for me, it's all about the data. Like I'm a researcher. I never, I was never into this for the money, clearly. But sometimes really it's like, ooh, I want to look into this and I want to look into this. And, and sometimes I really have to stop myself because, you know, like you're doing right now, it's like, ooh, I have another question. Ooh, this is so interesting. And then I have to refocus and be like, Laura, parents are not interested in everything else. So just, you know, keep, keep the, the focus on what people actually care about. But uh, no, I love your question. Thanks for asking all of this. So I wanted to ask you, as far as kids and and how much sleep they need. So is there any research that supports these, you know, sleep charts that you will find that say there is a recommended, you know, period of time that this age child should be asleep for? I wanted to go back one step before about the kind of nighttime needs for children and then go to your question about the schedules. I would say that in the, let's say, more popular side of the sleep community, uh, a lot of people confidently say that children under one year old, sometimes even older, need 11 to 12 hours per night. And so I was really interested to kind of dive into that. And even though in my professional experience, I knew that it was weird (laughs) because I don't know many babies who do that, I wanted to look at the data. So I, I really did a deep dive into kind of objective sleep data on, you know, larger sample. And I found a study on about 300 full-term six-month-old babies that use actigraphy. So just for people who don't know, actigraphy is pretty much like an Apple Watch. So it really shows the sleep according to the movement. And that's the most accurate, you know, as opposed to, let's say, parental questionnaires to know how much the baby slept. And what they found, I was like, I was surprised and not surprised, but the absolute maximum night sleep in that sample was 10 hours and 34 minutes per night. There was in that sample, no babies was sleeping 11 or 12 hours, none. And the average amount of sleep per night was eight hours and 46 minutes. So to me, what's surprising is that I do believe that there are some babies who sleep 11 to 12 hours, but it seems like it's an even smaller minority than what I thought. And it is what is amplified by people. And I feel like no wonder parents freak out and think that their babies have sleep problems because there's this fear that's created. And I have to say, I cannot even count the number of parents who come to me and they're like, what's wrong with my baby? And because, you know, they saw something online or their friends or their families told them. And then I look into it and I'm like, well, 
everything's fine. I mean, it's, you know, the first year is a mess, <laughs> but, but in this mess, it's normal. And what's wrong is that a lot of parents are made to believe that there is a problem. I think that's fascinating what you just said, because even even now after four kids, and of course I've dealt a lot with sleep and had a lot of anxiety over my children's sleep, as I'm sure many people listening have. And I still, even with my oldest, who's now 10, I'm like, okay, got to be to bed before nine, you know, because she has to get up at, you know, usually 630. And so I try to get her at least like nine hours of sleep because I'm going according to like, I don't know, who knows? Like, I don't even know if there's any, there's no research to support this number. I just have it in my head. (laughs) Yes, exactly. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is a great place to get some of your grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to your doorstep is a huge time saver. And we really enjoy some of the brands they carry like Kodiak, Go Macro, Primal Kitchen, and their own Thrive Market brand. I just placed an order to restock some of our go-to favorites from Thrive. I grabbed the Go Macro Bars and Oatmeal Chocolate Chip, the Kodiak Brownie Cups, which are packed with protein and our kids love, Sprouted Brown Rice Crisp Cereal, which our kids love as well, the Wisps and Tangy Ranch, so good, and I added the all-purpose cleaner and dish soap in Balsam and White Cedar. Thrive also carries my favorite self-tanner by Beauty by Earth, in case you are on the hunt for some. As a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single order. On average, you save over 30% each time. I just saved $18 on my last order. On top of the savings on each order, Thrive Market has a deals page that changes daily, gives you cash back on so many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. Thrive Market has over 70 filters on their site and app. You can filter between gluten-free snacks or non-toxic cleaning essentials with the click of a button. When you join Thrive Market, you are helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join and they give. Join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Lindsay, that's L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y. And you know, it's really interesting because I'm a sleep scientist, right? And you would be like, she, she, she would know when I became a mom, I would know. Um, the thing I want to put here is that, you know, when you're a scientist, it doesn't mean that you know everything about everything. Like I was working on sleep apnea at the time. I was not an expert in child sleep until I decided to really kind of do the research and have the foundation of all that knowledge. But my daughter was three months old and in the sleep, I would say in the sleep uh, community, sleep scientist community, sleep training is predominant as well. And so my daughter was three months old. I was like, we have to do it now. Otherwise, like, and so my husband, yeah, that's it. It's time if we don't do it now. And, and I honestly, I don't even know where my brainwashing comes from. I was not sleep trained. I don't, I don't know. And so my husband and he doesn't remember, and I don't know how, how, how it's possible because he changed the course of our parenting that day where I was like, <laughs> so we left my daughter to cry probably a minute and a half. And I was like, ah, no. And he, he, he's like, Laura, you know what? Everything was fine. And it was really like a slap, like, you know, a kind of virtual slap in my face where I was like, 
he's right. Like, why am I doing this? Like, what, what am I? And we never tried again. And we just went with the flow and we just followed what my daughter was doing, which was, which was pretty good. Honestly, I look back and I'm like, wow, you did amazing with the little you knew at the time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's swing back to sleep schedules, like just in general, like, is there anything to support any of these numbers and, you know, and number of naps and all of that? I feel like it's such a huge obsession once you have a child and it could be your first child. It could be your fourth child. I still had as much obsession with sleep as I did with the first and the fourth. So I know. And it changes every time, right? So you're like, wait, I thought I got it. And now it's so different. What am I? <laughs> I know. I know. Thought I had it down. I don't. <laughs> exactly. So um, just a little parenthesis on the fact that the kind of circadian rhythm or what we call the body clock is very different between one person to another. Um, so we have this idea that it is 24 hours. Turns out it's not. <laughs> oh. It varies between 20, about 23 hours and a half to 24 hours and 40 minutes. So some people have a shorter than 24 hours kind of body clock, whereas other people have longer. And that also affects kind of like what we call the chronotype. So are you more of the morning or are you more of the evening? Because it depends on how long your day is, your unique body telling you how long your day is. And so that is very heavily influenced by your genes at least nine genes are responsible for the chronotype. And what that would mean is that babies are born with it too, <laughs> you know? So they have certain sleep needs. And so when we look at reasonable charts, let's say for a newborn between zero and three months, what the National Sleep Foundation says is that commonly babies will, will sleep 14 to 17 hours per day in 24 hours, but they do observe that there are kids who seem to sleep 11 to 13 hours, others 18 to 19 hours, and that these numbers, as I was saying before, they may be appropriate. Like we don't know if they're bad because maybe those kids need less sleep. And that's what we call low sleep need or you know high sleep needs, etc. So I wanted to give this example because even if you stay in the range, let's say the baby who needs 14 hours per day and the baby who needs 17 hours per day, if we try to put these two babies on the same schedule, this unique, magical, you know, schedule that you were told for this specific age, the 17-hour baby might fit the schedule. Let's say he has a first nap of one hour, then two hours, then one hour, 15 minutes. By the way, I'm always amazed of like, how did you decide on the 15 minutes? It's like so precise. Like, where does that come from? No idea. Nowhere. But then you try to put the 14-hour baby on the schedule He'll never manage the two-hour nap because he's a slower sleep need. And then maybe one hour, but then all the time changes, right? And then it's he stays awake too long. Maybe he's more pissed off, you know, and be like, wait, why? And then there's no way he's going to do that magical 11 an hour, 11 hour and a half night. So what does that do? Stress for the parents, often the mom, who's like, she's desperate. She's trying to follow the schedule. And she's like, what did I do wrong? And she feels it's her fault because she's a shitty parent when, in fact, this rhythm just doesn't fit her baby. Right. So my take on schedules is simply that you can try them. Hopefully, loosely, you inspire yourself. And then if it doesn't work or if it creates stress, just ditch it because... 
there's no adult that sleep the same. And I just mentioned chronotype on top of everything else. And you're like, yeah, some people will wake up in the morning and they're like, just please kill me now. I can't be awake right now. And some will be like, woohoo, party time. In five minutes, I'll be exercising in front of YouTube or something. There's, there's like, it's unique and it's the same for babies. In terms of naps, I did a post recently on one of my, my Instagram accounts and one of the articles I looked into was a, a meta analysis of, uh, of lots of naps articles. And what was so funny is that they kind of quantified the quality of the measurements to see how accurate or reliable this data was. And like, <laughs> I think there was like five papers that were high quality that were reliable in terms of the data and everything else was like it's trash. <laughs> yeah. In terms of like how the data was obtained or like how the samples were mixed. Sometimes, you know, we have this problem, for example, in the breastfeeding community and research, because a lot of the time the question for a mom is like, are you breastfeeding? And it's like, if you breastfed one time or if you breastfed for six months, you're in the same sample. And it's like, wait. <laughs> and I'm not criticizing anyone here. I'm just pointing out, you know, like it's just not the same. Like the effects are going to be different. So um, the sampling is kind of critical. And so what they found for NAPS was just all over the place. Like it was just like... Yeah, most kids will sleep until four years old, but some kids will sleep longer. And it was such large average. And I can share with you the exact detail. But honestly, it was so vague that you can't really pull out much from that. So what I want to say is, if your baby shows sleepy cues, go for it. Uh, I would recommend to kind of keep an eye on it because usually if baby starts showing sleepy cues, it's that they're already tired. So I would kind of advance a little bit the kind of routine before they get tired. Mm -hmm. But I also want to talk to all the parents who might listen here and who are like, what sleepy cues? What do you mean? And, and this is also very personal because I found out much later, I was not the only one. My child, my baby was never showing any signs of sleepiness. And people would be like, oh, but you know, some kids don't need to sleep. And I'm like, really? <laughs> really? So with her, I kind of had to experiment a ton to find when she would fall asleep. And so in my case, and I don't recommend that all the time, but in my case, tracking the sleep was really useful because I could keep an eye on it and be like, oh, this time is not working anymore. Maybe now it's, you know, a little longer awake time, et cetera, et cetera. Don't go crazy on the tracking because that becomes really stressful and obsessive. But if you want to use it as a guideline because your child doesn't have a sleepy cue, then it can be really helpful of like, okay, I know that in the morning they need at least two hours awake before they want to sleep. It can prevent a lot of bedtime fights and stress for the parents as well. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned circadian rhythms and it made me think of like timing of sleep as far as like, you know, your natural cycle. Like for us, we typically go to bed around 9.30 or 10 o'clock and we typically get up at 5, 5.30 usually. And that's, you know, I would say... 85% of the time. I mean, my husband's a little bit more off because he works more full-time outside of the house than I do. But um, So his schedules can be kind of all over the place. But you kind of fall into that natural rhythm of where you feel comfortable. 
you know, how important, I guess, is that timing of falling to sleep relatively the same time every night? Like, does that matter as far as the quality of your sleep? In terms of, let's say, for example, just use jet lag as an example, because it's a good, it's a good example of kind of resetting the cycle. Most of the time, it's more important to wake up at the same time than go to bed at the same time. Like the morning will set up your schedule more than going to bed. Like it's, it's kind of easier that way to be like, okay, if I wake up at that time, then my night will kind of readjust itself. And of course, try to use the light. I, I feel like now everyone knows about this thanks to, you know, Huberman Lab and everyone's like, ooh, I know about lights and <laughs> like, but uh, use the light uh, at, to your advantage. But usually in terms of the circadian reset, uh, the time you wake up is more important than the time you go to sleep. But it kind of, kind of goes together, of course, but it's, it's just easier that way. And it works also better for kids. Is that why kids always wake up at the same time, no matter what time they go to bed? Because that drives me crazy, Laura. I'm like, what is going on? The one time we let you stay up, you know, we're very lax too, because we don't want our kids to like be so rigid on a schedule. Like, and we'll, you know, on a weekend, we're out with friends, they're out of football, whatever it might be. They go to bed at 10 o'clock, they go to bed at 10 o'clock, but they are up at the same exact time, Laura, every single time. They don't sleep in. (laughs) Well, the first thing that I would say is, good job, because that means that they're not very sleep deprived. You know, it means that, you know, you made an exception one time, but it didn't mess their whole, like the rest of the time they feel good. Otherwise they would have slept in. Like most of the time kids are still, and I'm, I'm knocking on wood that more kids are like that kind of like they're born and they're just bowls of instincts, right? And if we follow these instincts and we help them get in tune with their bodies And as you're saying, kind of be like a bit more going with the flow and helping them be in tune with what they need, then they can continue like that. And I do believe that children, you know, you you might notice it when they're sick, they're actually going to sleep more. They're actually going to have a nap, even if they stopped five years ago, because their body needs it. And if they're able to follow what they need at that point, then it's really good sign. The other thing I would say is, Uh, We hear a lot about, well, we hear schedules and we hear wake windows. I don't believe that all kids follow wake windows. There are kids who do, and there are kids who follow it super strictly. Like you can try to make them sleep five minutes before it won't work. And five minutes after it's too late. Like, (laughs) so they really need this very strict, like amount of time awake before they can go to sleep. Some, some kids follow it more loosely, but I've also seen those kids who they will poop at the same time every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I, I find, I feel like those kids kind of, my theory is that their circadian clock is close to 24 hours. And so if it's close to 24 hours, they kind of naturally have this clock that tell like their, their body clock is the same as the clock, the natural clock. Again, this is a, this is a theory. I've never read about this. It's just that it made sense in my brain. And so their body tends to do the same thing at the same time. So I have seen kids who go to bed at the same time, kind of on their own, not like induced by the parents, which, yeah, I think is interesting. So it could be that it could be one possibility about your children. Yeah. I mean, my kids will do that. We, we will go, we'll try to go upstairs on school nights at seven o'clock. They start, you know, brush teeth, we'll read a book and then they just 
most days they're running around crazy, like getting all their energy out. And we have learned to be very hands-off because what am I going to do? Micromanage this situation? Like they'll get into bed when they're tired, right? Like that, that's how I think of it now. And, you know, sure enough, you know, always by like 815, 830, they kind of venture in on their own. We might have given a few clues of like, hey, it might be a good idea to get in your bed and start reading a book or what have you. But they kind of get up there on their own and fall asleep, usually at the same exact time every night. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, which is, you know, there, it can't, you know, there's always exceptions to it. Like if they're playing a really fun game or whatever, they won't, you know, get themselves up there. But yeah, it's like they know they're like, okay, I'm I'm definitely feeling tired now. I need to get into my bed. But yeah, it's it's so it's so interesting. So you mentioned sleep training and you mentioned that you did it for a minute and a half and then you can't. <laughs> um, I would love for you, because you focus on holistic sleep, can you tell us the difference between sleep training and holistic sleep and then kind of dive into it? Holistic sleep can be a synonym of like comprehensive. So the idea, even if it has, I feel like a bad rep, the meaning is really simple. Like we want to follow the entire individual to assess sleep. It's not just some superficial observations, like what we just talked about, like what time they sleep, how long they sleep, what time they nap. Sleep is super complex and can be affected by so many things in adults and in, in kids as well. So Usually, if you just look at the rhythm, you don't have all the answers that you need. Like, for example, in children, one thing that is often ignored is the temperament. Like some kids are are more excitable, more like their their nervous system gets dialed up. There are so many things that, you know, we we maybe need to do a part two. But <laughs> like in terms of like the sleep cycles, it's something I talk a lot on my page because Parents are like, oh, I need to teach my child to, to link sleep cycles. And it's like, well, some kids will just continue the sleep cycle because their nervous system doesn't get activated and they're like, chill. And some kids will be triggered by something because their, their temperament is higher or more needy or whatever people want to call it. Some kids will wake up in between cycles and be like, oh, what's going on? And there's nothing you can do but support the child to come back down because you can't go to sleep when you're not calm. Like that's just the basic definition of sleep. Like if you're into in fight or flight mode or work mode. So for, for um, adults, for example, if you're like, oh, I forgot to do this. Oh, to-do list. Oh, ooh, mm, how am I going to do this tomorrow? No way you're going to fall asleep. Like that's not going to work. You need to be in like, just thinking about something else and, you know, being chill in bed in order to fall asleep. So this temperament is often ignored and be like, ooh, your child can't link, link uh, sleep cycle. There's a problem. Is it? Or is it just this unique need of the child? So it's really important for me to, to show that side and, and understand that babies, they're born with their own signature, their own code, their own needs. And if we ignore all that, in many cases, as we said, the 11 to 12 hours night babies are a small, small minority. In many cases, if you try to put them in a box, it's not going to go well for you. So on the other side of holistic sleep, my definition and the definition in my community usually of sleep training is any kind of method that requires you either not to follow your child cues or your own feelings. And usually these techniques are very rigid with specific schedules and way of, of doing something like your child does this, you have to do this kind of thing. 
Whereas for me, like I remember one mom that I was working with and we were trying to uh, create a very positive association with sleep and bedtime. And so usually I really get to know the family like in, in a very personal <laughs> level. And I was like, so what does your child like to do? And she's like, well, she likes to walk around naked. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, carefully, I'm like, well, um, would it be your style to just like, you know, have a kind of like naked party with her and just dance around and, you know, do something fun like that. And I, again, I'm really careful. I don't think that every family will be like, yeah, let's do a naked party. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it was funny because she's like, oh my goodness, this is great. Yes, absolutely. And this is so unique to that family. Like who else is going to do that? Probably almost no one. This is what worked for them. And this was one of the triggers of like associating sleep with something fun, with something, you know, the sleep. And when I say sleep, I mean the environment as well, like doing something fun in the environment. And I always try to have this kind of unique thing from the family it's really useless for me to say your baby needs a massage and then the mom's like oh I hate doing massage and my baby hates massage why would you do that if it's not fun for anyone you know what I mean and that's another thing like bedtime routines are like what's the perfect bedtime routine there's no perfect bedtime routine there's what you like to do and what your child likes to do with you and the more you can have this kind of fun and positive connection the more you're going to uh, really have long-term positive, like what, when you were talking about your kids, like to me, just from a very superficial point of view, like what you created is that, like there's no bad sleep association with your kids and they eventually get into bed. Whereas when you get this kind of sense of dread going to bed, you will have way more bedtime battles and your kids will be like, no way. Because they don't want to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's definitely, it's interesting. Okay, so what advice do you have for, you know, somebody listening right now that is struggling with, you know, their baby, whoever, however old they might be, and just they hit that four-month mark because you mentioned the four-month, you know, there is this, there is a four-month sleep regression. I have four kids. I do think that one of mine skipped it though, and it might've been a little bit later because I don't distinctly remember it being at four months, but for the majority, <laughs> I I feel like it happens right around that mark and it is so brutal. I mean, it's, it's horrible. My friend just went through it and she was like, I don't know that I can survive another day. <laughs> so what are your suggestions on how parents can survive this period of time that that tends to happen sometimes with babies. It happens every couple months and sometimes it only happens once or twice, right? It, it totally varies depending on the baby. How do we make it through? <laughs> the first thing is really that parenting is not supposed to be done alone. And I'm sure a lot of people listening do not have the capacity to have help, whether it's because, you know, they're expats like me or they can't hire help. I always say like, you know, a lot of people who hire my services are families who are more privileged. And I, I'm happy because I'm like, okay, the more I can uh, fund myself, the more I can create free content for everyone else. So that works for me. But those families, I will tell them, I'm, I'm like, if you have the cash, just spend it. Like have nannies, have someone cook for you, have someone clean for you. It doesn't mean that you need to give away your child. <laughs> There's a kind of balance to find that there. But 
you're not supposed to do it alone. Like you're really not supposed to do it alone. So whether it's like having, you know, other mom friends uh, on call or like, I remember I used to text other moms while, while I was breastfeeding in the middle of the night. These little things are really, really important. You need to have some self-care. And when I say self-care, showering alone or doing groceries for the family does not count. Like <laughs> that is not self-care. Self-care, even if it's five minutes a day to just think about something for you. I don't know. Do you like to go roll in the grass outside for five minutes? You know, again, like it's like the naked family just before. Find something that's unique to you that really makes you reconnect with yourself for a little bit and not just be a mom because or, or a dad because I know that's really hard. Another thing is uh, it, it's really hard to find content online. Like our community, our holistic sleep community is still a, a minority. The huge majority of people will be like, you have to sleep train. This is a rite of passage almost, you know, like, or your child needs to sleep 12 hours or, or they will have deficit in their academics later or whatever the hell the people say. It's really important to kind of, the first thing is if you read something that doesn't make you feel good, and I think you're going to relate to that because I think your kind of social media history is really interesting, uh, but just ditch it. Like you need to be encouraged in your parenting and not be taken down. The last thing I wanted to say is in terms of like habits, I recently, I was really interested and I was like, oh, you know, basically sleep training says that in three days, your child's going to learn these habits. What does that even mean? Well, the thing is, when you look into it, adults, adult habit creation takes an average of two months and up to a year. How can we expect anything from a child just thinking about that? But on top of that, as we said, babies have such immature brains that are moving so fast. And also some of the structure that are required for habit making develop gradually until 30 year old. So there's, there's no way that we can expect the baby to have like, oh, they were sleeping so well. And now that's how it's going to be for five years. No. It's very, very nonlinear. There's no habit. There's no like, oh, I know how to do this now and I'm going to continue doing it. So that that's really important to me to kind of be realistic. What people are sold online is such unrealistic expectation. Just human in human wise. It's like what human does exactly the same thing, you know, kind of cause effect. Like you do this and then the human does that. Even my cats don't do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And so what we said uh, earlier about uh, the positive association, like that's really, for me, it's, it's the most important thing. If you imagine for a second that every time you have a meal, you're watching some TV show that kind of triggers some bad memory of yours. I promise you that you will try to avoid eating after a while because you will associate this bad association. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You will be like, Ooh, every time I eat, I have this thing. It's really awful. Is that what we want for our kids when they sleep? Like if we want healthy sleeping habits or hygiene, we need to make it safe and secure and even fun. And that's how you will have a lifelong positive sleep hygiene and have these people want, like, you want these humans to want to make it part, like, it's, I don't know, when you want to exercise, you're not going to 
force yourself to do something grueling that you hate every day. Like you're going to try and make it fun so that it's long-term. And I believe that that's really one of the key, but to all the parents listening, um, whether you wake up two times a night or 10 times a night, I know it's hard and I see you and try to find people, you know, you can trust online, try to find uplifting information and people who can really support you in a holistic way is, you know, what I would really recommend. Yes. All right, Laura, is there anything you want to add to the first part of this conversation before I end with the two random questions I ask everybody I interview? I know we covered so much. We And there's, I mean, you know, I have a million, I was like jotting down questions as you were going that of course, you know, we didn't get to, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll record another one and like maybe <laughs> next year or something, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, again, like try to really surround yourself with good people, uh, virtually and in real life is, is the most important thing. And I, I would like people, and I know it's hard I would like people to trust me that when they will look back, they won't regret what they were doing. Like when I look back to, you know, all the efforts I've done for sleep where, you know, and I don't know, it's like a little bit of, we did a little bit of Montessori and all these things. And I was like, you don't know if it's going to work. Like there's not, there's no data about it. And you're like, okay, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do this. It's going to, but then three, four years later, I see so much good that's coming from that, whether it's about sleep or learning, because I'm trying to infuse positive in everything I do with my daughter. And that's, you know, the connection, the attachment, the trust, the, the safety is really what helps you grow. And then you have these, like, I'm so proud because my daughter is so much more emotionally regulated than I was at her age. And that that's all you can do, but it will come. Like you won't regret what you're doing right now is what I want to say. Well, yeah. And you won't see any, those results right away. Yeah, I know. I know. So hard. Like, you know, I, I see that in our 10 year old now where she does things and I'm like, oh, that's really cool that that kind of came full circle, but it takes a long time and your work feels like it's for nothing and you feel very alone. And, um, especially if you're not sleeping, especially if maybe you don't have, you know, that really good connection with anybody in real life and you only have that connection, maybe virtually, like you said, it's, it can be hard. It can, you can feel like you're, everything's for nothing, you know, but like, as you said, it's, we promise it's not for nothing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So yeah, thank you so much. It was so much fun to, to chat about all this. I know. All right. So two questions, two really quick questions for you that we end with at, after every episode. So the first one is if you could, I mean, you kind of already gave us that piece of advice. So I feel like we can skip that one because you just gave us the advice. And then the last question is if you could make one meal for your family that everyone would eat, that's relatively quick and easy. What would it be? So in our family, uh, my daughter's obsessed with eggplants. I don't know why. So one of our most common one, and I love this kind of one pot pot pasta thing. So pasta, uh, eggplants, um, not tomato sauce, but the kind of like the dense one. What is that called? Uh, tomato concentrate. Uh, sorry. I Oh, like a tomato paste? Yeah, tomato paste mm-hmm. um, and garlic, of course. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, you put feta cheese on top. And that's, and we love that. We do that very, very regularly. And yeah, so you can cook the whole thing together. And at the end, you add the feta cheese. Uh, delicious. Highly recommend. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for talking to us about sleep. And hopefully everybody that's listened to this will sleep well tonight. (laughs) Have a nice sleep. (laughs) Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.